0: How's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning back in. I wanted to talk a little bit about Patrick Mahomes before the JJ Zacharyson interview. JJ gets into, into some really good stuff. He talks about how he looks at prospects, what metrics he uses, some mistakes that, I, that fantasy players tend to make when they're looking at prospects. He talks about a story. It's, it's an overall really good episode, really informative, and I think a little bit entertaining. So that'll be good. But first, we needed to talk about what's going on with Patrick Mahomes. So first, I think it's important to note, this is pretty much semantics, right? When he got tackled yesterday, the defender grabbed his neck and sort of pulled him backwards in the opposite direction he was running. At the time, what it looked like to me, and I tweeted about it, was that his head did what's called a coup counter coup, right? His head was going backwards and then slammed forward. A lot of times that's what causes a brain injury, right? The brain, you can think of it sort of like the yolk inside of an egg. You don't have to break the shell itself, but if you shake it hard enough, the yolk is going to bust. That's what a traditional concussion was. And that's what it sort of looked like initially. Now, what it ended up being, according to Jay Glazer, is that he had his carotid arteries essentially cut off. If you don't know what carotid arteries are, they are on the front of your neck at the base. They run all the way up into your brain. They bifurcate into smaller arteries and they give your brain oxygen and blood. When you get them cut off the way Patrick Mahomes did, what essentially happened is the defender kinked the hose carrying the blood from the arteries to the brain and his brain didn't have oxygen or enough enough oxygen or blood to function for that split second. Now, those are some massive arteries. They provide a lot of blood to the brain and even a split second of not having enough oxygen and blood to the brain can cause the symptoms that Patrick Mahomes displayed. They looked like concussion symptoms. He was sort of wobbly. He didn't really know what was going on. You could see it in his eyes. It was really scary. It's a scary scene. Now, they put him in the concussion protocol because he was displaying signs of concussion right? You could have fooled me. I've never seen that in a non-combat sport where the carotid arteries are occluded that way. And an athlete loses consciousness. If I would have seen that 10 times, nine out of 10 times, I would have told you it was a coup counter coup concussion. The other one time I would have said, yeah, maybe it's carotid arteries. So fooled me. I was wrong, but that's where I was wrong. Um, I always look at a, and approach things as if you hear hoofbeats think horses, not zebras. What's the most likely explanation? And maybe in that case, I was wrong. I was wrong to think that a a coup-counter-coup concussion was the most likely explanation, but that's where I went. But for some clarity, the reason he is in the concussion protocol is because he displayed concussion-like symptoms. It's not necessarily because he got a traditional concussion. However, here's where things get a little tricky and it, it becomes semantics. This was still technically a brain injury. He did not have enough blood and oxygen to the brain in that moment so his brain, for a split second, shut down. That is, for all intents and purposes, a hypoxic brain injury. You can't really say it's more severe or less severe. It's just different. It's not a traditional brain injury, but still, moral of the story, he's in the concussion protocol. Obviously, he didn't come back, but he's going to be in the protocol likely most of the week. I'm not going to say that he's going to play and that it's a slam dunk. I also don't think that there's any bad intentions behind keeping him in the concussion protocol. I think that they'll walk him through and try to be as safe as possible. It's just important to keep in mind that since this is a non-traditional brain injury, it's going to be day by day. You know, I, I think it's wrong to think that it's a slam dunk is going to play. Um, but I also can't say that he's not going to play. So we'll take it day by day. If he's doing well, he's going to continue to progress through the protocol. I don't really think it's like a competitive advantage thing. I, I think that the bills are probably preparing to play against Patrick Mahomes. And if they're not, then they'll be just fine playing against Chad Henney. And I think that they're going to prepare that way. So, in the end, that's what's going on with Patrick Mahomes. That's Those are the differences in perspectives and viewpoints. Uh, it was still technically a brain injury because his brain didn't get blood and oxygen, but it was not a traditional, what you'd think of, quote unquote, traditional concussion. So that's what's going on with Patrick Mahomes. So now that's enough of me rambling. We'll get into the show with JJ Zacharyson. Welcome back to the Injury Prone Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Edwin Porter, doctor of physical therapy, medical analyst at fantasypoints.com. Gracias por tus oídos. Thanks for tuning in. That might sound familiar. We have the originator or maybe not the originator, but the person who ad, ad adapted at ad, I was going to say adapted, that's not a word, who adapted the Thanks for tuning in about 500 times now I think it is. Uh whatever number he's on, he's a dad, he's an editor in chief at FanDuel and Fire. He's the author of the Late Round Quarterback. He's a host of the Late Round, Late Round podcast uh, with Danny Carter at Live the Stream FF on Twitter. He is an, a pit alum and he is at Late Round Quarterback on Twitter. None other than JJ Zacharyson. JJ, thank you for joining us. I really, really wanted to get get to know you a little bit better. I think maybe humanize you a little bit because people, I, I see how people can be really mean to you on Twitter. But I think the one question most followers want to know right off the bat is, how are you, first of all? And how many retirement parties did you experience this year? (laughs)
1: i'm i'm good um you know to be fair i feel like people on twitter for the most part like there there are other analysts who take a lot more crap than i do it's just that i often will call it out whenever they do uh and i'll make some sarcastic comment back to them because i I, like what what's the point in having like a a listenership and readership if not to just you know have fun with it a little bit Uh, yeah absolutely so yeah, so things are good. I'm I'm good. I'm excited for uh these conference championship games. As for the amount of retirement parties that I experienced this year, um, I I, I was actually thinking about this. I, I would probably say that I did three I had three of them a week-ish. Um, it slowed down <laughs> towards the end of the year because I got to a point where, you know, people were were hitting my mentions consistently. I mean, I'm talking like every five minutes asking me for a retirement tweet for a player that they had. Um, And so guilty. Guilty. Yeah. It got, got to a point where I just wanted to slow it down a little bit and not, not totally overplay it. Uh, So I'd say, I'd say I was probably at about 50 retirement parties this year. 50
0: who throws the best one, who who throws Um, the best one. In other words, who's were you actually literally tilting your face off of.
1: Oh my gosh, there's been so many. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm just I'm I have so much recency bias in my brain and, and like nothing compared to the, the 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 true retirement parties. And what I mean by that is like this past week with with Drew Brees. Um right, like I, right. I felt I felt kind of terrible making the joke about the retirement party. Uh but mm. I you know, it was all in fun. And then the the, the best one though, the best one was Des Bryant. <laughs> When, when he, was the actually, best <laughs> he, he actually said uh, on Twitter that he was going to retire because he had a false positive for COVID against the Cowboys, there was nothing better than calling out their retirement.
0: That was, yeah, that was definitely probably the funniest one that I saw. He, he's such an interesting character too. I mean, he, he said that and then he like comes back to the team. So I thought that was, thought that yeah. was interesting, but I think people give you too much crap about their time. I mean, I think they're funny. I think it's even funnier when you run into the ground, you know, for that's lack of a better point, phrase. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah the, exactly. that's the point. That's the point. You wouldn't be a dad if if you didn't do that. Speaking of being a dad, though, I, I think as the maybe the microphone for all dads out there, I'm not a dad. I'm a dog dad, a rabbit dad. I'm not a human dad. Uh, mm. what, would do you prefer the black nikes or the or the all white nikes and do you mow your lawn in them?
1: No, look you got to go all white with any any shoe you wear as a dad if you're doing yard work in particular i, I usually go with the white newbies the new balances uh you newbies
0: know, wow you even got a nickname for
1: them. the white the white new balances with the blue n on them Uh, because look, they need to be white so you can show off the grass stains, right? So you can, so that someone can see you from, from, you know, feet, multiple feet away, you know, a hundred feet away. And they can see that grass stain on your shoe. And that, that shows them that you're a true dad.
0: They know you've been putting in the work and they know you've been grinding. Are there tears? Like, so the one thing I'm looking forward to when my wife and I have kids is, is the dad's strength, but are there tears? Like, is there a certain time? Like, I don't know, Avery's like two or three, I think I heard you say on the podcast, like yeah. at what point do you get to the point where you're like really good at trimming your, your hedges versus like super utmost dad strength where you could like beat any kid's butt?
1: Oh man. I, look, I'll tell you what, my, my shoulder strength has gotten exponentially better since. Yeah. She was I bet. a toddler because you just throw them up in the air constantly. Like that's just, that that's, she loves it. I mean, there's nothing more that she wants in life than to just be tossed in the air. And now she's 30 pounds. So you're just, it's like throwing up a 30 pound kettlebell up in the air or, or, or a, you know, just a weighted ball, uh, up in the air multiple times. Uh, and doing that, you know, you get, you get good, uh, sets of 10, uh, over and over again. So, so the dad strength really comes via just tossing your children. Around. <laughs>
0: them around so I think I think one of the coolest things that uh, I noticed because I told you I'd been listening to your podcast for the last couple of years now one of the coolest things is when you do talk about Avery and just your life outside of fantasy football because I think people really do get pretty mean and they sort of objectify your your profession what you do and the and the analysis that you put out and they treat it like it's the only part of you but you're a human right so I thought it was cool when I listened I think it was with Pat Fitz Morris that you you talked about your story a little bit about how you went from like a regular nine to five to looking into fantasy football to writing a book. And then now you do it full time. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I got my degree in marketing. I went to, uh, Pitt university of Pittsburgh. Um, I got my degree graduated, you know, did the four years, had my, had, had a good time in college, you know, did the typical college thing. Uh, my, my now wife and I moved out to Cincinnati after graduating. So she, she and I went to high school together, but we didn't start dating until college. Um, and then, you know, we, we decided to move to Cincinnati, uh, she got a job out there and then I found a job out there. Um, and so I, I, I got my degree in marketing and I have, I actually have like a graphic design web design background, um, that I was, it was self-taught. I didn't go to school for it or anything like that. I just was always really interested. And that's actually how I made like side money in high school instead of having like the traditional job. Nice. Um, and so that was always like a sort of, sort of a passion of mine, um, and so given the fact that I, you know, was doing, had this marketing degree and such, I, I went into the advertising world and, and worked for an ad agency out of college in Cincinnati and Cincinnati's where Procter and Gamble's at. So you just did a lot of, you know, I did a lot of work for, for Procter and Gamble brands like Swiffer and stuff like that. Uh, wow. So, Did you ever get
0: any free Swiffer's?
1: Um, I don't think, I mean, I was too, I was an entry-level, you know, project manager at the time. And so I didn't matter much. Um, And and so, but, but, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. It sounds, it sounds a lot cooler than it is. Uh, (laughs) It it really was a very demoralizing uh, scenario and situation for me, I would say, Um, you know, to the point where, you know, I then took another job that, you know, after like a year and a half, two years of this one, uh, my, my original gig took another job at another smaller firm. Um, But while I was there, uh, was sort of where I was when I was launching this ebook. So at my first job, I w- I was just sitting there, and I'm like, I'm not getting enough out of work right now. This is not really where my passion is. You know, I-, I just I feel like I'm doing worthless work. You know, I don't feel fulfilled. And so what I did was is I would work during the day, I'd go home, uh, and I would be I would I would just write this e that became this ebook. You know, one day at work, I just opened up a Word document and just started writing like. Some of my passions and what I would ideally like to do, um, and when one of those things was fantasy football, because I'd always just been so so into fantasy, as as most people who are are analysts or even you know just just folks who who want to do it as a hobby, you're just so into it, uh, and it forces you to do that. So um, I, I just decided to to start the start jotting my thoughts down a little bit, and at the time, you know, this is twenty eleven, twenty twelve. At the time, uh, quarterbacks were were really really uh starting to to get a lot of love around the industry and be drafted early. So in 2012, people forget about this, but five quarterbacks were drafted in the first two rounds ADP wise. Um, Do you remember who they were? Um, I'm going to say Aaron Rodgers, uh, probably Peyton Manning, uh, Matthew Stafford and Cam Newton were two of them. Um, and I'm, I don't, maybe Tom Brady was the last one. I don't know who the last one was. Um, but yeah, so there were, there were five quarterbacks, uh, that were being drafted in the first two rounds of drafts. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense because, you know, I've been playing fantasy at that time for 10 years or so, 10 plus years, maybe. Um, and, and I, you know, constantly and consistently was drafting quarterbacks late because I realized that even though, you know, there are year to year fluctuations with scoring and maybe one guy is giving you an edge that one year, you know, I realized that just this really basic way of looking at fantasy football is from a supply and demand perspective where there's a lot of quarterbacks who are usable uh, and you're only starting one of them. So there's going to be guys on the waiver wire or you can get guys late and so on. So what I did was, is I took the passion of everything. Really? I, I, at the time, you know, this is, again, this is like nine or 10 years ago. Uh, at the time, you know, eBooks were were not as big as the, and, and just frequent as they are now. Uh, and so what I did was is I combined my, my web design and, and graphic design love and knowledge, and I actually coded this eBook uh, and, and made it look pretty uh, and responsive, which was a, a thing that was not as easy to do back then. Um, I did that and had a lot of fun doing that all while writing this ebook that was based on drafting quarterbacks late and just fantasy football strategy. I'd never really written anything in my life that was important. Um, So I had to put that together and and sort of just kind of find my voice a little bit through doing that. Brought it all together, launched the ebook in 2012. And at the time, everyone's saying, yo, get your quarterbacks early. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you might want to get them late. Uh, And here's why. And so I had the book. And then over that next year, you I got opportunities at I uh, did a quarterback series at Roto World. Uh, Evan Silva messaged me one day, um, which it was crazy when, you know, it's just one of those moments. Everyone has those like those moments in their career where like, you know, I always read Evan Silva and I was following him and all that kind of stuff. And then he calls me one day and I'm like, oh, I'm having a conversation with Silva. And then I look back and now I'm good friends with the guy. Uh, and it's just it's a it's such a weird, you know, thing to look back on and, and talk about and think about. But uh, Silva hit me up. I had a conversation with him. And then I wrote these articles. I did a little bit of work. I think I wrote like three articles for pro football focus when Mike Clay was there. And then a couple months after the PFF stuff, uh, I got a call from number fire and they were looking for someone to sort of run their content. Uh, and I jumped on the opportunity and I've been doing that ever since.
0: Jeez, man, that's. First of the first thing that came to mind was is JJ 97 years old because you've been <sighs> playing fantasy football you said for 10 years t- almost 10 years ago. So, I mean, maybe I'm confused. Maybe yeah, you're uh, like maybe Benjamin was, Button.
1: That might have been that might have been hyperbole. But I I will I've been playing those since I was like, you know, 13ish. So, it's been Oh, wow, really? like the league yeah, the league that I've run uh with my high school buddies. We just had our 18th year, I think. Uh, of dear for, God. For, yeah, so I've been I've been playing for a really long time. I'm still, I mean, I'm 30, I'm going to be 33 in a month, so I'm not like that old, but um, yeah, I mean like I've been, I've been playing fantasy football for a really long time considering, you know, I'm not like 50 years old.
0: So your story is so cool in the sense that I feel like you just worked your ass off and like did it for you be, you made it your full-time job before it was your full-time job. That's what it sounds like you did. And then eventually like you said, you're getting calls from Evan Silva, which when you say like it's cool to look back on times like that, as the Christian Leitner of fantasypoints.com, I can 100% empathize with that because I'm talking to Scott Barrett, Graham Barfield, and I'm like, dude, why am I, Why are these people even asking me questions? So it's <laughs> definitely a cool. And, and now you're that dude, right? You're like, you're that dude to a bunch of other people. Like If, you, I, if, you, yeah, get, if, if you get really JJ Zacharyson on your pod, I mean, you're going places, right?
1: Yeah, but that that kind of stuff always makes me feel uncomfortable. Admittedly, like I just I, I I I look I I really appreciate when people are that kind to me and say those kinds of things to me. But it's like it's it just I I now can see like how an Evan would have felt that way, you know, back whenever. Like I remember where I was talking to him that day. That's how like you know when like big moments like that happen, and you you don't see it as a big moment necess- or the other person doesn't see it as a big moment necessarily, but it means a lot to the other person. Um, and I've had conversations with Evan about this too, but. Um, You know, I think that a lot of times and I I try to pay it forward as much as possible because a lot of times, you know, when those opportunities do arise, you know, you being the person who's allowing that or, you know, giving that opportunity, you don't realize all the time how big that is for the other person. Um, And so, you know, Silva probably had no idea. He probably still doesn't have any idea. Um, But, yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, at the time I had no idea that this would ever be my career. And, you know, when I started all of this. Uh, it was interesting because when I switched my jobs, um, I I was just on the verge of like publishing this ebook and and really going after it and and trying this and you know getting my name out there a little bit. And so when I switched my jobs, a lot of people at my old job thought that I was switching to do this like full time and really go for it. Um, but I was really just switching jobs because I wanted a different job and I was taking that you know going that route. Um, but you know it was just one of those things where like I'd never had in my mind that I was going to be doing this full time, necessarily. I didn't even know it was that possible. I was just doing something that I was really passionate about and putting a lot of work into.
0: Well, I'm glad that I could make you uncomfortable on my podcast, <laughs> JJ. That, that was the goal. That's what, I, that's what I set out to do.
1: I'm um, bad with compliments. I'm bad with compliments. Right, yeah,
0: well, that's okay. That, that, I think that's a good sign that you're, that, you're, that you're staying humble, man. I think that when you take comp when anybody takes compliments and lets it fill their head, then I think that's that's more of a negative sign potentially of where, where things might be going. But it's good to see that you're sitting here, you know, you got the blue check mark. I think you definitely have done some landmark pieces, like including the quarterback stuff, which we'll get into later. Um, but it's cool to just be able to talk to you. you you're super down to earth um, and you hang out with Denny Carter. So I think if anybody oh. is down to earth, <laughs> can hang out with Denny Carter. I think, that's, I think that's one person you could hang out with. Um, I was going to ask you, this is going to be later on, but I think it fits in perfectly now. Dude, things are so different, right, compared to 2012, 2013 in terms of content creation. Um, I think we can both agree that it's just saturated with, I think, people trying. And this is not, not to talk negatively on people who are trying to create metrics and find correlations. I mean, I try to do that myself with injuries, but it's just different now, right? So what advice would you give to content creators now trying to make it now?
1: yeah you know way back in the day it was definitely different and I say way back in the day, like I'm a grandpa again uh but but no, I mean even like grandpa five years ago, even even like five years ago it was it was a lot different in how you sort of you know entered uh the space and and how you built your your quote unquote brand um but yeah I mean I, I would say that the big thing if you look at 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 people who have really you know, broken free and have been able to do this full time and, and you know, have built their following and their readership and their listenership. Um, all it takes is to be different, but be different with a purpose. Um, and so, you know, differentiation is, is very, very important. If you look back at, obviously, like the late round quarterback, my story in the ebook, you know, a huge reason that I was able to to then get some traction early on, uh, was because it was it was something that was contrarian right uh, but at the same time it was contrarian while being you know based on on uh, actual facts and and data and logic right and so there was a utility for people where they could could read that and take something away and be different um, and go with a different approach than everyone else in their league who was drafting quarterbacks early but if you you know if you look at like a Matt Harmon and what he did with reception perception um, and if you look at like Rich Rebar who did his worksheet I mean there's there's these these pieces of content that you can you can look at things at a very micro level and do something very very specific, um, and then you find you're, you're following that way because people are like, oh, I need this very very specific thing, and then you branch out. Whereas I think a lot of people enter the space and they look at things at a more of a macro level, more of that branch out level where they're saying, I'm just gonna put rankings together, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna, but it's it's. It, you know, no one cares about your rankings right now because no one knows who you are. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I mean, even today, I mean, there's stuff like, I don't really feel that comfortable putting rankings together all the time because I think it's just a sort of a, a very, uh, annoyingly, uh, dumb way to play fantasy football and to look at fantasy football is, is looking at rankings. Um, but like the, you know, have some more depth to what you're doing, have a little bit more thought and and differentiate what you're doing for a purpose. Um, I think that's the the main thing that people generally miss, you know, there's nothing wrong with player analysis articles or, uh, breaking down your rankings and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with that kind of thing, especially if you just want to do this as a hobby. Right. Um, but there are different ways to differentiate what you're doing with your, your content pieces. And don't just think about like what you're analyzing and what you're writing about. Think about the medium that you're delivering that in. So a big reason why I think the late round podcast has been able to work is because I looked at the landscape and I said, there are a lot of hour long shows out here. And there's that, that's the general length for a podcast. I understand it, but there aren't enough, you know, 15 to 20 minute shows. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why I went with the length that I went with uh, because it was an easy way to differentiate what I was doing, right. And stand out. So I think that's kind of the the mindset that I have with it. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people ask me how to, how to break in and that's my go-to answer, honestly, it's just, be different, you know, find ways to be different. It doesn't have to just be with the analysis and the content. It can be with your voice and the medium and, and, and how you're approaching the content. Uh, but it's very, very important to be different.
0: What do you think is lacking? I'm curious now that you said, you know, think on the micro, what's something, what's an answer, or, I mean, I'm sorry, a question, um, that you personally think about that you're like, man, I wish I had more data on this or more information on that. Something that maybe hasn't been exploited yet. What do you think?
1: I think there's always room for game theory and uh, inf- related information. Um, you know, it's just it's something that's constantly overlooked in the space. Um, if you can come through with something that's compelling uh, on, on a game theory level, um, I just I think people gravitate towards that. Um, and it were I mean, I can look back at my my podcast numbers even or the article numbers that I get uh, for stuff that I write and, and, and produce. And easily the the best shows and the best articles that I put together are game theory driven articles and shows, which is why a large portion of my time during the offseason in particular uh, is focused on that kind of stuff, because uh, it's a way to actually uh, give people the tools uh, to to beat their league mates consistently. Um, You know, that that's where the utility comes into play and that's where you can really. Uh, help people out is by, by looking at the game theory side, because look, I mean, my, my dad has been in that, that fantasy league that I talked about uh, earlier, that's been around for like 18 years now, and and he can go to and and find a rankings list anywhere and find sleepers and and draft the same guys that I want to draft or my other league mates who are really into this want to draft. And he's not, my dad's not super, super into this. Right. Um, Because it's just really easy to find this information now. Whereas, you know, really uh, being reactionary to what's going on in your draft. Uh, and, and understanding that the strategy side, that's something that you have to learn. That's something that takes time. And, and by, you know, being the analyst who puts that kind of stuff out there, um, that's really what's going to be helpful in, in, in uh, allowing yourself to, to stand out.
0: Yeah, and I think that your dad must be at least 137 if you're... Yeah, yeah, he's, and, getting yeah. He's,
1: he's getting up there. He's getting up there. Yeah,
0: he's getting up there. So um, definitely has dad strength, we'll put it that way. He's he's reached maximum tiers. Um, so then I think a, a, a good follow-up here then is, I don't necessarily want to ask how your 2020 went, but I do want to know, was it different than most seasons? And as we move into the game theory sort of off-season time where people do put up more content that way, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you look at prospects and how you look at the game in general and what your views are there?
1: Yeah. So, as far as my 2020 season uh, kind of went, I'd say it was fine for, for the most part. You know, I, I didn't, I feel like I didn't have many like strong takes uh, on one side or the other with, with some stuff as more higher level, like positional related things. Um, but, you know, some, some like general takeaways that I've, I, uh, realized this season. I think you know it was interesting because we kind of have like a control group this year, right? Because we we didn't have like we know how fans impact games now, at least to a, to a to some degree, right? Uh, and, and what we found uh was that you know home field advantage changed a little bit. Uh, there was more scoring overall. I think that that you know obviously part of that was because of increase in play action and. Uh, fewer holding calls is a is a huge deal. Um, but also, I think that that teams, uh, you know, were able to, to uh, you know, weight teams in particular were able to change more at the line of scrimmage and do more that way. Um, and I, I think that's part of the reason why we saw uh, some of somewhat of an uptick in scoring. Then obviously, um, you know, there, there wasn't the preseason. We didn't have the the same prep and the reps that we typically do. And then as a result of that uh, you see, uh, defenses, you know, not really catching up with offenses, which was actually something that I tweeted about at the start of the season, because back in 2012, there was that near lockout. And that season, the first three weeks of the year overs hit at an insane rate. Uh, there were just so many overs that were hit. Um, and so the same thing happened this year. And then it kind of, you know, leveled off a little bit. Um, but yeah, my season, you know, the 2020 season to me, you, you sort of have an interesting dynamic where we have this, like, pseudo control group where we can we can see uh, why numbers and why things did what they did. And that that was one of the more interesting things that I think happened this season.
0: So another question that some of your stands are asking, um, because I tweeted this out, and I think this sort of fits in fits in best here. How did it do, I guess, relative to like your, your models, right? So you put models in, I know there are some parody accounts, JJ's models. um, I think those are some of the best parody accounts, by the way, but uh, how did your models fare this year, I guess, in terms of predictions and and projections compared to any other year?
1: Yeah. So I, I, the, the models, if you will, that I have um, they're definitely more focused on prospecting and such. So, you know, running backs, wide receivers in particular, and then I have my projections as well that I do every year. Um, and, and I would say honestly, it was it was right in line. You know, my one of my big takeaways uh this year was definitely the fact that good players are gonna be good. Uh I know that it sounds so basic, no, but, absolutely, it, absolutely. but but it's like it's like we see these rookies just go nuts. And it was a good rookie class. Not 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 a good rookie class, it was an amazing rookie class. And and going into this season, we knew it was a good rookie class. I mean, there were comps of this class to the 2014 2014, right? The 2014 wide receiver class. Yes, uh, that, that was a loaded was, class. Yeah, that was completely loaded. There were there were comps to that, uh, and I would argue that this class is going to end up being better than that one. Um, but what we saw was that you know a lot of people were were turned off by the lack of reps that these rookies were going to see, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they they just balled out. I mean, Justin Jefferson breaks the rookie receiving record. We have Brandon Ayuk balling out down the stretch. We have T Higgins doing really well. I mean, the the whole class just just did well. The whole first two rounds of rookie drafts had like an eighty percent hit rate this year. Um, and so what that tells us is that maybe we shouldn't overstate like change of scenery and, uh, you know, the w- what it means for it to, tr- to transition to the NFL. And I know the game's changing a little bit, too, and there's more college concepts. It's a little bit easier, too, for wide receivers than it used to be. But even still, I mean, it's just one of those things where good players are going to find the field and they're going to do well. And that, that to me, was one of the big takeaways. And that made it easier, too, on, you know, my prospect model and my my projections and such is that. I didn't really have to adjust for, for what was really going on, you know, with, with the lack of reps and and with the circumstances of this pandemic season. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, I think the, the prospecting was fine and normal and the, the projections were fine and normal.
0: How do you start your, your sort of prospect looking? How do you, how do you analyze these prospects now coming into 2021?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I, what I do is, and it's kind of obnoxious this year because the, the combine's not happening, but I usually start prospecting at the end of like January ish. So around now, um, and, and I'll, I'll take the combine list and I'll start with those players and I'll input them into my database and I'll, uh, you know, run their numbers basically, um, based on a few metrics that I found to be, uh, predictive, uh, when, when working in unison, uh, be predictive, uh, in what's your
0: favorite one. I'm going to interrupt you. What's your favorite metric when you, uh, look at uh,
1: I would say yards either. I mean, for running backs, yards per team play, uh, and then for wide receivers, yards per team pass attempt. I Um, thought you were going to say hand size. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't actually, my models don't really get heavy into, into combine metrics. So that's, that's not going to really matter that much for, for, uh, the prospecting that I do it's really honestly it's really just for thresholds uh the combine stuff that i look at so like you know elijah holyfield uh running like a 472 or whatever it was uh, a couple of years ago like he was off limits no matter what i was never going to touch that guy um and so you know generally speaking though good players in the nfl are are not going to be that poor at, at like running the 40 right and so right. uh what i found is that there's just not a lot of correlation um with the the combine versus um, you know, how they perform at the NFL level, because there's just so much more to look at when you're evaluating these guys, mostly college production and when they broke out and all that kind of stuff. So the reason I, I like like a yards per per team pass attempt at wide receiver, this is something that the Rotoviz guys have worked with for a really long time. Anthony Amico talked to me about it about three years ago, I'd say, and I I incorporated it in my model and it, it really helped my model out. Um, it's just, it's, it's a metric that when you think about it, actually, by the way, yards per team pass attempt is a really good metric for the NFL too. And no one, no one seems to talk about it that much, but it's fairly predictive year over year. Um, and and it it makes sense because it's sort of like a, a market share efficiency hybrid metric where, uh, you know, the market share component is there because you're comparing it, uh, within a player's team environment. And then the efficiency is there because it will, you know, benefit players who are who are gaining more yards per per reception and per catch and such. But um, yeah, that's just been a metric that that really seems to capture a lot, and it's been pretty predictive.
0: What mistake do you think when players are looking at prospects, or just in fantasy football in general? What's the biggest mistake you think that that you know even casual players or or more advanced players make?
1: Yeah, I think the one thing, and this is something that I've learned too. I mean, to to me, if you're not looking back at old content that you've written and and done. Uh, and, and, and really being turned off by it and saying, I can't believe that I wrote this. I think you're doing it wrong because you should be evolving. You should be getting better. So, you know, people always ask me, oh, where can I get your ebook? And I'm like, don't buy my ebook. Please don't buy my ebook. Uh, cause it's not good anymore. Right. I have three copies of that ebook. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's just not a good, the, the analysis in there is horrific. And I cringe if I look at it. So I, I haven't looked at it in like six years, but, um, yeah. So the, the one thing that I, I think that, that people, um, don't really pay enough attention to or 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 stress too much is the the floor to ceiling combo of of what individual players provide you can you can think of that from the perspective of prospects you can think of it as a weekly projection and how we we project players uh, because number one we think we know a lot more than we actually do we got to embrace variance a little bit more than we do right um, and so we're not going to be very accurate in projecting these floor ceiling combos um, but not only that but I, I think we overstate what a floor means in general uh, for a player, and and that goes for prospects as well. Um, because what does that really mean that he's a safe prospect? You know, I I, I definitely throw it around uh, because there are some players where you can easily see them playing a role in the NFL, but maybe you don't think that their physicality is there enough uh, to be elite at the next level. Like a Cooper Cup is a good example of that. Um, but at the same time, uh, I I think that that we, we overstate that safety, that safety point a little bit, um, just because it doesn't matter that much. You know, if a, if a guy busts for instance, especially like think of your redraft league and you're in the sixth round and you're saying, I'm going to get this guy because I'm getting him as the RB 23. And I know for a fact, he's going to finish as at least the RB 23. Well, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean anything. You got to be chasing ceiling. You got to be chasing upside, always go for those players. And look, I'm someone who's guilty of not always doing that and needing to do that more. And and honestly, it's the main reason why I missed out on someone like Chase Claypool this past year, where he was a highly volatile prospect and it got into the second round of my rookie drafts and I didn't take him enough. Right. And and that, that bit ended up biting me. Um, So it's just one of those scenarios where, you know, don't, don't overstate these, the the, the floor of these players and the safety of these players, um, because it's not like a second round rookie pick really means that much.
0: If you could summarize two two questions in one, I guess. If you could summarize, how do you avoid the Nikhil Harry's and how do you hit on the Chase Claypools? What would what would be the answer?
1: Oh man. Uh, two sentences you said?
0: Uh we'll give you three.
1: I, I mean I could maybe do it in two. I would say it in one. A, Good
0: one. No, I'm just I kidding. would say you, you I to. would
1: say do your best to avoid guys who lack separation. Uh, at, at the college level, but then on top of that, if they do lack the separation, make sure that they're physical freaks. So what I, I don't, I don't, I don't think Nikhil Harry necessarily hit that threshold the way that Chase Claypool did. Yeah,
0: that's fair. I, so that that would be my my follow up question is, how do you avoid noisy separation? I've ta- I've talked to Scott Barrett about this too. How how sort of just looking at it from a plane separation perspective can get a little noisy. How do you avoid that noise? And then what was the other? Uh, we'll, we'll start there. We'll start there. How do you avoid, I mean, what do you look at when you look at separation? Or do you look at it in conjunction with other metrics? Are you just looking at separation? Can you describe that a little?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm using metrics that, that others are looking at too. You know, like I'm not someone who, when I, when I prospect, I'm doing it almost entirely through data. I'm watching the guys, so I sound competent when I'm talking about them. Um, Do you even watch the games, JJ? I I do. I do. (laughs) I know it's, it's crazy, but I do watch every game every week, everyone. Um, But yeah, so like, you know, someone who, so if, if there are draft guys out there who are just film grinding, right. And just going nuts with that. um, And there's a consistent theme that a guy lacks separation, then, then I'm going to mark that down. uh, Even if his numbers look great. And that's something that I learned with Nikhil Harry, because I was, I was high on Harry uh, after year one. Fortunately, I bailed after year or er, before year one. And then, fortunately, I bailed after year one, uh, where, where some folks were doubling down. It just seemed like a bad idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's just listening to those people and being open minded about it um, and then making sure that it matches with what the data says. So, like, if there's a guy who doesn't, who, who lacks separation that's getting a lot of love in the draft community um, you know, regardless of that, but lacks a separation. And then my model looks at him and sees him as maybe a slightly above average prospect, then that's someone I'm generally going to avoid. Right. Um, but if, if, but if it's someone like Nikhil Harry, that's where you have a dilemma and it's just going to be, uh, how subjective can, you know, do you want to be when you make these decisions? And I'm very open to being subjective because the draft process is such a dart throw situation, right? It's just a, a, a giant, giant, uh, coin flip, uh, not only with NFL teams but the way that we draft guys too i mean if you look at the the hit rates of first rounds and rookie drafts over the last decade it's horrendous right like we're not we're not very good at all at, at predicting who these uh, which which guys are going to be good and which guys aren't i mean we're we're not horrific i mean we're still you know it's not like fourth rounders are just as valuable as first rounders um but there's definitely drop offs like as as you get after after you get to like the 106 107 uh, and then you get into like the, the late second into early third round. That's generally where these like drop-offs exist. Um, and so just be cognizant of that kind of thing. But I- I'm basically just really, really open to being subjective with the way that I'm drafting these guys.
0: So interesting. I never, I never thought that I'd hear you say that, but I think that's the, one of the smartest things that I've heard anybody talk about is I think that there's uh and so like in the scientific community, right in, in the clinical community, I guess that looks at the scientific literature. We, look at the evidence, the science, what does it say? We look at the patient values, like what does the patient want? And then we also look at what does our past experience say and dictate? There are a lot of times, you know, a collection of anecdotes, a collection of stories, you know, N equals one doesn't tell you a lot except for anything, you know, except for that specific case, but a collection of N, right? A collection of anecdotes. If there are a ton of people who are looking at film, which can be subjective. But if they're all basically saying the same thing, there's probably some truth to that. And yeah. I think that that's one of the coolest things uh, that I took away from from what you just said is that you have to be willing to be subjective because the more rigid that you are, the more rigid, you you know, the, the worst situation, the, the worst of a situation you sort of put yourself in by being rigid.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I was actually talking, I had a, I talked to my doctor today. I was, I had an appointment with him. And, and one of the things that, that I talked to him about and what he admitted, he was like, look, we don't have all the answers, right? Like he, he he's admitting that he exactly. doesn't know absolutely everything because it would be ignorant to think that you knew everything. So if I'm getting a second opinion on something, or if I'm, you know, talking to this other doctor about X, Y, and Z. He doesn't get mad about that. He's, he's accepting of that because he knows that he doesn't know everything about this particular topic. And, and, and that's the way that I feel, especially with a topic that is a lot, lot has a lot, lot more variance than anything medically related. Right. I mean, hopefully, hopefully anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like let's, let's hope that we're not diagnosing patients with stuff at the same rate that, that, uh, you know, teams are, are hitting on quarterbacks in the first round. (laughs) <laughs> um and so so i i just it's one of those things where where like my model can say you know this is the guy to draft right and and, I, and there are times where i go against my model and my model's right and there are times where the opposite's true too um and, and you know the question is when do you do that when do you not do that uh you do it just based on feel i mean it and it's okay because that's the way the nfl draft is i mean it's it's a very very luck driven thing um, and, and you know a lot of times you're just kind of going with intuition
0: absolutely so we'll, we'll get you out of here on this last thing, right so you tweeted this was a, almost a couple of weeks ago quarterback rushing touchdown by year right to th- from so you go from 2011 until 2019 here's a rushing touch quarterback rushing touchdowns 66, 65 55, 47, 61, 65, 66, 71, 80. in 2020 there were 126 quarterback rushing touchdowns JJ are we moving away from the late round strategy, and are we going to move into the mid-round strategy? Are we going to move into the hybrid model? What is going on, and will you change your handle if that happens?
1: You know, one of my one of my proudest takes of the past year was before the season started, moving and openly admitting that I was moving towards more of a middle-round quarterback strategy. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back because I just published a podcast on the things that I missed this year. So trust me, I'm open to talking about the things that I got wrong, which is a lot of things. Uh, but one of the things that I was proud of is the fact that I recognized that, you know, the the league itself is shifting to these mobile quarterbacks who can now throw the ball well. And that that's the difference than what we've seen uh, historically, where, you know, we had like Cam Newton and Michael Vick and such, but they weren't matching numbers year over year to some of the higher end quarterbacks. But we're starting to get that now. Um, and so as a result of that, um, you know, we're going to get fluctuation. Like, think think of it this way. So you have your your top twelve quarterbacks, your top six quarterbacks, and if you look at them this past year, uh, a higher percent or a higher number of of rushing points per game were coming to the top twelve and top six quarterbacks than what we've seen over the last decades. So they were running the ball more and gaining more points via their legs than before. Uh, and so, if, if you think about it from the perspective of what's going to be sticky year over year. What's going to be sticky is, is more so the rushing component than the passing component because the passing component is generally made up of touchdown rate and touchdowns, right? And so touchdown rate being uh, touchdowns divided by attempts, that's something that fluctuates a lot year over year. It's a th- something that regresses. So every year I say, don't draft the, the, highest, you know, the highest ranked quarterback from the previous season or the highest couple ranked because generally speaking, they're coming, they're, they're, uh, coming back from a season where they had an unsustainable touchdown rate. Aaron Rodgers this year, second best touchdown rate of all time. There's no chance I'm touching him in 2021. There's no chance because we know that that's very unlikely for him to repeat that. So if you, but historically we've only had to deal with passing. Now we have this rushing component, which is very important because that's going to be stickier than what the passing component uh, is and, and what that brings. And so what that means is, you know, historically, if you look at, the correlation between ADP and postseason result of top twelve quarterbacks. There's almost no correlation. The the R squared is zero. It's like 0.05. Um, and so uh, what that tells us is that you know you could have drafted a you know random uh, of that the, those top twelve quarterbacks. You could have drafted the QB eight in your draft, and he could have he had just as good of a chance to finish as the QB one as the QB three did within that sample, right? And so uh, what that means is with this rushing component is that correlation coefficient is likely going to be stronger so they're going to be more predictable from a season-long perspective quarterbacks are than they have traditionally and so what that means is russell wilson josh allen deshaun watson lamar jackson kyler murray dak prescott those players are going to be the top eight or so quarterbacks you know top top nine quarterbacks and we should feel confident that they're going to finish that way whereas before we didn't have that same confidence because everything fluctuated so much because of their passing numbers. But now we have these rushing numbers to fall back on. And that's why a middle round quarterback strategy actually will likely make sense until we have enough of an influx of quarterbacks who are going to be running the ball consistently, which is coming, but we just don't know when that time is going to to hit.
0: So, That was a lot of information. And I think that's like one of the, that you are so good at making this concise and explaining it. Like I was telling, we were talking before we started recording that listening to JJ's podcast is like snorting 15 (laughs) to 20 minutes of fantasy football content and then going about your day. That's exactly how I felt just now. And I was, I was levitating. So I appreciate that answer. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think if you look at it, especially this year, um, I did a mock draft, which I wish it would have been, it would have been an actual draft where I actually, (laughs) I took, I took Kyler Murray in like the eighth Hmm. and people were looking at me like, what are you doing? But now, um, I have the OG telling me that was the right move. So I'm happy with that. I guess I'll take, I'll start taking quarterbacks in the seventh and eighth
1: next year. Yeah. Look, I mean, honestly, Josh Allen was my highest rostered quarterback across my redraft leagues this year. Oh, you crushed. Oh, you (laughs) crushed For for sure. But it was it was because of this concept. And he was always see, I, I draft in tears too, and he was always the last guy of that, that rushing tier that would be drafted. So it was very easy. And sometimes people would really discount the crap out of him because they just didn't trust his arm. And and fortunately, you know, I did uh on my on my Things That I Missed show, I talked about how I missed on Stefan Diggs this year, but fortunately I was able to capture some of that with with all my Josh Allen exposure. But, you know, this is this is really what uh, what, I, you know, it was really me putting what I had researched into practice is that, you know, the, 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 Russian component cannot be overstated for quarterbacks. And now finally we have a situation in an environment where we're going to be able to predict these, the, the, the position way better than we have over the last five to 10 years.
0: Speaking of predictions in 2018, you, you nailed, I mean, you smacked the ball out of the park when you, when you said Lamar Jackson was going to basically break the game. You you hit that. I remember listening to that. I remember I read the article, and then it happened in real time, and I was like, "Holy shit! Like this is this is cool." Sorry to the kids, um, but who is that in twenty twenty one now? Who are you looking at? Who do you think it it, it, it can even you can be shoot, shooting from the hip even if you haven't done a deep dive?
1: I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think we're gonna have a Lamar Jackson type season again, um, at least in the short term. But I think if it's going to happen we're going to have to look at one of the rookies and maybe like a Justin Fields, who's going to get a lot of work on, on the ground. I mean, you're really looking for, I would, I would honestly say Joe Burrow if he didn't have sustained that injury, I would, I would feel mm-hmm. sort of confident in that because he does bring that rushing component. He had a really low touchdown rate this year that, that, you know, it's going to regress positively for him. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, the, the offensive line can be boosted a little bit. The weapons are there. I really like Joe Burrow's environment. I just wish that the injury didn't happen. Um, So, you know, so does he, yeah, since we're talking about this in January, I can't hear and say Joe Burrow would be it. Um, I think yeah, you're I mean, right
0: there, though. I think that's the right approach with him. The he had a massive knee injury. I mean that that is not something. Even if he's physiologically gets there, um, we see it with with athletes all the time. They'll get through their rehab. They're doing like some intense rehab, man. Like strength and conditioning work. They're cutting. They're jumping. They're they're you know throwing weight around, but they get onto the field and it's just not the same. Like they're psychologically not there. So there's something to that. So I think that's, that's the right process. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So no, I was just going to say, I mean like the guys this year, for instance, uh, I I didn't, I didn't see a late round quarterback this past year that was going to get close to like a Mahomes or Lamar Jackson type season. So the guys that, you know, if I didn't get a Josh Allen type, in my drafts, I was getting like a Joe Burrow or a Ryan Tannehill uh, because they're guys that are mobile um, and that they can bring that upside. Um, And so you know, I I think the only really option to have like that true ceiling is, is to, to, to attack ambiguity and ambiguity is going to exist with the rookie quarterback. So I think maybe a rookie quarterback would be the one who, you know, would surprise us all because otherwise you look across the landscape and, and and honestly, the market's going to be really efficient at the quarterback position, just as it was this year.
0: Awesome, man. This was so good. I really appreciate you coming on JJ. We will get you out of here. Where can people find you?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Late Round QB and then you can find my podcast, the Late Round Podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found.
0: That sounds familiar. I've heard that before. <laughs> thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Super sharp analysis as always. I think that I think that the uh the stands will appreciate this one a lot. So thanks for coming on, JJ. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me.